Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Stephen Noon, former chief strategist to the Yes campaign in the 2014 Scottish independence referendum. And since then, oh boy, what a life he's led. Many years training to be a Jesuit priest. And now he's in academia at Edinburgh University. Now, this isn't just about his experiences of running a referendum campaign or, or helping run a referendum campaign and uh, strategizing uh, on the yes side, uh, the, the Scottish independence side of that referendum campaign, but also why he felt he had to go and do something arguably completely different, arguably uh, maybe not, um, but also his ideas for the future. Now, this isn't just a reflection on the recent Supreme Court ruling or um, the First Minister's uh, promise to hold the next election as a de facto referendum, although you may not be surprised to hear if you're familiar with Stephen's work and, it, and his interviews. And he gave a brilliant interview to The Times in August. So do find, in fact, I'll put a link to it. I'll put a link to it in the blurb so that you can find it because it is excellent. Um, uh, it is behind a paywall. But if you Google him, you'll be able to find basically what he's about. It's just very thoughtful, very calm, and clearly very keen to change the way the debate about the Constitution is being held in Scotland to take a longer calmer, uh, more collegiate and less adversarial view, which I think we should all agree with. Um, so it won't surprise you to hear that he disagrees with the idea, for instance, of, of uh, holding the next general election as a de facto referendum. But th there's way more detail in it than that. And also, it's just a lovely, thoughtful interview with a really thoughtful person who has been at the centre of something then not been and reflected on it and, and really done years of, of thinking. And that really that really shows in this. Um, so before uh, I, I give you the treat of an interview uh, with Stephen Noon, just to let you know, I can announce some very exciting guests for the coming weeks and months. So some of these uh, I haven't announced yet. Now, as you'll know, the next show on the 5th of December, my guest is the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves. That's on Monday, the 5th of December, this coming Monday. Uh, so come down to the Duchess Theatre for that. The full lineup now for the Christmas special. I'm so excited. How about this for a Christmas lineup? Yvette Cooper, Emily Thornbury, and live music from MP4. That is going to be such a special night. Emily is one of the funniest guests I've ever had on the show. I've never interviewed Yvette on the political party before. So this will be such a special night for so many reasons. The perfect way to end the year. Monday the 19th of December, Yvette Cooper... Emily Thornbury and MP4. Then in the new year, the first show back on the 23rd of January is Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. And I can reveal that on the 20th of February, my guest will be the leader of the opposition, the bookies' favourite to be our next Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, is back on the show on Monday the 20th of February. And on Monday the 6th of March, my guest is Eddie Izzard. Loads more guests to be announced for next year. Some huge names that I can almost confirm. Follow me on Twitter um, for those at Matt Ford. But without further ado, this phenomenal, just this is such a pleasure to talk to someone who's really considered and has really thought through um, how things should be done. And, and it, it, it's just more than anything, he has his own view, obviously, as we all do. But his desire, his keenness to just calm things down, uh, I found deeply inspiring. This is Stephen Noon. I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Noon, who was chief strategist to the Yes campaign in 2014. Obviously, Stephen, uh, Scottish independence is back in the news um, with the Supreme Court ruling last week. Let's just talk about that first. Were you surprised by the verdict of the Supreme Court? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I can read the legal runes. So, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a surprise in the end. 
And and is it for you, obviously for someone who was so closely associated with Scottish independence and, and spent every second trying to achieve it, was it a disappointing verdict or in a way, do you, is that a separate thing from the politics? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it'd be really good if we could find an, a way forward. I mean, I think this is an issue that's not going to go away. So uh, whether it's the Supreme Court providing the route forward or or you know politicians getting together and finding the route forward, for me, that's the most important thing. Uh, there's a, a decision to be taken uh, about Scotland's future, our relationship with the rest of the UK. So let's you know, get on and have that conversation and take that decision. You've written some fantastic articles, given some brilliant interviews over the last few months. Um, and it is obviously fascinating to hear from anyone who's been so closely associated with one side, effectively break cover and just maybe say things that are slightly more <laughs> reasonable, perhaps unfair, because that would pre- that would presume that you were unreasonable before, but certainly um, strike a note of compromise. Um, well, well, it's what- easy no longer being a politician. So when you're a politician, there are certain rules of the game. Uh, and so once you're an ex, uh, things become a wee bit easier. Um, Do you miss it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, so I miss aspects of it. Um, I mean, there's obviously something hugely exciting about, you know, the the back, backwards and forwards of politics. Um, you, you know, it's a very, you go into the office in the morning, and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, you're dealing with a whole range of different things coming at you from all angles. So, you know, a hugely exciting job, great deal of responsibility as well. Um, so, yeah, I miss, I miss aspects. But I also don't miss the fact that sometimes when you're having to stick to a line, you you do miss nuance, you do miss the, uh, the bigger picture. Uh, you get caught in traps, I think, sometimes of, um, you know, the dividing lines which we start to believe perhaps um, as having more reality than they really do. So do you think then since 2014, your some of your opinions have changed? No, I mean, I continue to be a firm believer in independence. Uh, I just think that um, we can't move to independence on 50% plus one vote. Um, I think we have to move to independence in a way that genuinely takes Scotland with us. But also we, we move to independence in a way that uh, is not against the rest of the UK. So somehow we have to do it in a way where we're cooperating as we move forward. I mean, for me, one of the lessons of Brexit is that if you have um, a narrow result and then you have the, the two sides negotiating the arrangement, you know, talking against each other, you end up with a deal which is not as good as it could be. So you know, let, let's do this as united as possible in Scotland, but let's do it as much as we can moving forward with the rest of the UK. Um, I mean, that is also based upon the belief that, you know, independence in the modern world is not Scotland sailing off into the North Atlantic somewhere. You know, Scotland is looking for more independence, but we're also looking for a relationship with the rest of the UK. Almost everybody, everybody in the Yes movement wants some degree of ongoing relationship with the UK. So so let's work out what that more independence will mean and let's also work out what the degree of relationship, degree of union even, uh, might be. So I suppose the point I've been trying to make, and this is one I've held, I, I, I come from a, a strand of thought in the SNP, which is all about shared sovereignty. You know, we're, uh, you know we, don't, we, don't have, we don't have a 19th century idea of sovereignty. We have a very, I think, modern, independence and an interdependent world idea of sovereignty. So I come from that uh, part of the movement. uh, And absolutely, we have to have an ongoing relationship with the rest of the UK. And let's just work out what that will be. So given that that's your view, how how do you feel when you see Nicola Sturgeon in a gazebo outside Holyrood talking about her opponents being democracy deniers and people there with all sorts of placards saying, is Scotland a colony? That feels very different to where you're coming from. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that we, one of the challenges for us all is to start trying to understand where people are coming from. Um, and I think that people who are on the no side of this argument, the pro-UK side, genuinely should understand the frustration. And, you know, there's a real desire in Scotland for change. Having 50% of the population wanting the end of the union must say something. And so rather than sort of looking at the uh, 
the campaign and the, the the voices and sort of being critical of them, let's try and understand, okay, well, why is this happening? And it's happening because there's a genuine desire for change, for change and a frustration because ch- there isn't there doesn't seem to be a path forward for change. So the challenge for those in the pro-UK side is to sort of try and understand where some of this is coming from. But I think also the challenge for people on my side is to equally understand you know, people in the no side don't want this referendum just now. They, you know, this was not a good experience for people back in, for some people back in 2014. Uh, you know, Scotland becoming independent is not good news for England. I mean, it's going to create all sorts of difficulties. So we have to also understand that while we have rights and while the democratic argument is a powerful one, we we we, we don't just hold these rights on our own. Um and so we have to sort of find a way of understanding also where the other side are coming from. And as a strategist, do you think phrases like, is Scotland a colony are helpful or are they, I mean, it feels to me like, even though, you know, people who listen to this and they'll be yes, no, they'll be leave and remain, they'll be, they'll be neither. Um, I think most people in life are, are reasonable. And yeah. you've probably got more in common with people on the other side of the constitutional debate who would rather have a respectful debate than perhaps people on, your own side of the yes, no, who perhaps say things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, two things. One is politics is partly theatre. Uh, so there's a, a certain performative element to this, and that's not to sort of justify some of the language that's been used. But I think we shouldn't get too worried sometimes about, you know, the language used on, on either side. And the second point is, well, what's what's this language actually saying? What's it actually telling us? Uh, and it's telling us we've come to a point of, stuckness that's not a very good word but <laughs> i think it captures it um you know we've got a reality whereby 50 percent of people in scotland are looking for significant change up to leaving the country up to leaving the uk uh, and we have to find a way of dealing with this uh, i mean for me it's as simple as that and how do you feel about the the change then uh of treating the next election as a de facto referendum do you think that's a good move so i think that we can have a yet another campaign uh, and we end up in the same position, almost certainly, of two sides, you know, knocking their heads against each other, two sides talking over each other. Uh, I think there has to be, at some point, uh, an electoral decision, whether that's through an, uh, an election or a, a referendum. But before that, I think there's a process to go through. Uh, and I'd much rather we went through a process of actually talking to each other uh, before we get to the point of electoral decision. So my reference point for this is back to the 1990s. You know, viewers, listeners elsewhere in the UK might not uh, uh, remember this, but in Scotland, we went through a process of a thing called the Claim of Right, which was our, our sovereign right to decide, which was signed by Labour, Lib Dems, Civic Scotland. And we then had a, a constitutional convention where people from across this political spectrum um, gathered and, and, and worked out what they wanted, what we wanted as a country. And after that, at the end of that process, we then had a referendum and, and the referendum essentially confirmed what the people of Scotland had expressed, that had already expressed as their will. So I, I think my, my favourite option would be to try and create a path which identifies, once again, the settled will of the people of Scotland. Uh, and once we have that 60%, 65%, 55%, whatever it is supporting this option, uh, we then have the referendum and we, we, we move forward at that point. Um, I, I just think that's a much, much better way of doing this. So again, the difference for me is between campaign winning and you can win a campaign 50.1% and you can sort of uh, push ahead to independence or you can actually also nation build. And nation build is not just about institutions, it's also about creating a sense of uh, all of us, as many of us as possible, moving forward together. And, and I, I actually want to make this a nation-building process. I mean, this is all uh, completely reasonable, sensible stuff. In theory, in practice, it would be being uh, enacted in a Scotland that does feel very divided. I mean, obviously, the UK feels divided over Brexit and a whole number of things. These things aren't just affecting Scotland, but Scotland has that unique extra layer of uh, the, the independence debate. I mean... It would be very hard to see in the short or medium term how you could get to a point where effectively the people who want to stay in the union would ever feel comfortable with independence. I mean, people on both sides seem so entrenched that 
how do you ever move forward with a significant part of the population not feeling effectively deeply offended that, that they've been put through this for so long? So again, I think there are two elements to this, one of which is, again, reflecting back in the 90s, um, it required Civic Scotland to sort of bring the politicians into a space where they were talking about. So the uh, the Constitutional Convention was first established by, I think it was a former civil servant, some, some senior academics some people involved in, in the public sector, senior levels in the public sector, STUC, um, the Church of Scotland's Church of Nation Committee, I mean, a whole range of sort of Civic Scotland voices said to the politicians, look, come in behind this, we, we want to do this in a particular way. So I think there's a role, again, for those in Civic Scotland at the moment to say to the politicians, look, we want a different way forward. Uh, and I think that is possible to bring the politicians into this fold. It's not easy, but it's possible. Uh, the second thing I would say is when you enter a process, you have to be willing to enter it on the basis that it's not just going to deliver your view. So we, as YES supporters, have to be willing to not quite get what we want. Um, but equally, those who are you know, pro-UK might have to give a little bit more than they are currently willing. Uh, I mean, that's what you know, compromise means. And again, I think back to Labour. I mean, Labour, you know, they made a very big compromise back in the 90s. They agreed to proportional representation for the Scottish Parliament. And that was, uh, you know, putting the national interest before the party interest. It meant that Labour did not have the dominant position in Scottish politics that they might have expected or they were used to. Uh, so there is something about putting the national interest before the party political interest. And we can look, you know, thumbs up. Congratulations to Labour for doing that before. And I think, uh, you know, I would hope that all the parties would be able to do it now. So as a yes supporter, uh, I want independence. I wish I could click my fingers and independence would happen tomorrow. But, you know, that's not going to happen. So we have to find a way forward where it we, we can deliver it in as constructive and unifying a way as possible. And that might mean for me not getting it in five years' time, uh, but maybe beginning a process which in 10, 15, 20, 25 years' time will take us to, um, I mean, independence. And when I say independence, it means in independence in an interdependent world. So an independence where we have an ongoing relationship with the UK, we have a, a relationship with the EU, and we find some sort of balance uh, between, as I said, more independence and ongoing relationship. So is that, I mean, I, I, it might have been you actually, I, 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 so briefly, that awful thing where, you know, you're on Twitter and you see something that really appeals to you. And then the moment you click on it, the page refreshes and it, it's completely gone. But I saw someone saying it might have been you um, about using Ireland as, and obviously Ireland is a very, very, very different context. But the idea, effectively, what the Good Friday Agreement did, which was allow people who wanted to feel British to feel British and people feel Irish to feel Irish. Is there a way to do that? I mean, in a way, some people listening might say, don't we already have that? Doesn't Scotland already have that as a level of autonomy? There are things that we do together. There are things that are fully devolved. There are things that Scotland can do on its own. Aren't we already in the middle of, of, of the process that you describe? Yeah, I mean, I think we've begun the process. So I, I have in my mind sort of a, a one to 10 scale about these things, with one being, you know, Scotland essentially a, a fully incorporated, a county of, of England, you know, that sort of incorporation, no different from, from Sussex or whatever, uh, or Scotland being 10 in the scale, which is like floating off in the North Atlantic somewhere completely separate. And I think with the, you know, the Scottish Parliament was first set up was probably four in the scale. I think we're probably currently five in the scale after the things which happened after the 2014 referendum. I think the Gordon Brown proposals might take us to six uh, on the scale. Uh, so, you know, you're, you're just over the point probably of a wee bit more towards independence. Um, but yeah, what, what is independence? So again, I would, I would say independence in Europe, which was the SNP policy for many years, where we were, uh, you know, cooperating with people across a whole range of policies uh, you know, sharing sovereignty at that level is, is probably eight, eight in the scale. So, so you're somewhere like, you know, six on the scale with the Gordon Brown proposals, eight in the scale, you know, with the SNP proposals. And that's not a, a huge difference. Um, and, you know, you know, but we're not opposites. We're not standing, uh, arguing for completely different things. And that's not to say that, you know, independence in Europe is is by any means the same as, uh, you know, greater home rule within the UK. They, they are different, but they are not as different as some people would like us to think. Um, 
So I think there's a process where a conversation can be had around this sort of shared area. So, so the, the phrase I use is independence within the UK, and that could be like a glib, you know, politician's phrase, which doesn't actually mean anything. But for me, it means something very particular, which is the Scottish Parliament becomes sovereign. It chooses to share that sovereignty with the UK, and you introduce some sort of mechanism whereby the Scottish Parliament over time can draw down additional powers. Uh, and you do that perhaps after a process of um, civic assembly, citizens' assembly conversation in Scotland, where you decide, well, what are the powers we need, the extra powers we need? But you also go through a process with the UK. We can't do this unilaterally. Um, so there's a thing at the moment called uh, the Sewell Convention, which allows the Scottish Parliament to consent for Westminster to legislate in areas touching in Scotland. You could have a reverse Sewell, where, where if the Scottish Parliament wishes to uh, take on extra powers, there's a process of consent and agreement with the rest of the UK. You know, there are ways of doing this. So um, ca can we find different spaces to move this debate into? Uh, and I, I think absolutely we can. Um, um, you know, sharing sovereignty is not an impossible place to get to. Uh, it's interesting that you say on, on your on the noon scale of one to ten, um, as it will forever now be called, that, that after the referendum, um, with effectively the Smith Commission and the Scotland Act, that, that that things improved. I mean, I speak to people on 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 the yes side. Um, who are you know passionate supporters of Scottish independence? Who are good friends of mine, who feel that actually that the Smith Commission didn't do anything, that the vow was a mirage, that that it didn't deliver anything extra. I mean, I, I take it you disagree with that. So I think the 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 rhetoric used around the vow was greater than the actual detail it was ever promised. So we were you know as close to home rule as we possibly could. You know, the F word federalism uh, being used, uh, but. You know, behind that rhetoric, the the detail of what was promised, I think, is is pretty much what was delivered. Uh, so we got some additional tax powers, we got some additional responsibility over welfare. Um, so yeah, that was a, a reasonable step forward. I, I think there are issues around some of the powers that were granted. I, I, I you know, the there's improvement still to be made. Um, and I think the Gordon Brown Commission will take things a wee bit further. We'll find out in the next few days. I, I think. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I would say to, to Labour, um, wh why are you doing this? Are you doing it as a, an electoral ploy to sort of stop the SNP uh, and just trying to give the bare minimum to stop the Nats and, you know, pull back the yes vote? If that's the reason you're doing it, you know, it's not going to work. Uh, I think you have to work out what, what is it you believe in, um, offer a package which is based upon you know, your values as a, a Labour Party, believers in the union, um, and take it from there. So, you know, I, I am hopeful that the Gordon Brown Commission will produce something interesting, but I think it probably will not. I, th I think many people in Scotland will want it to go a wee bit further. You mentioned federalism there. It's something that Keir Starmer had, had said yeah. uh, a few years before he became leader. And, and you talk about Gordon Brown. You seem quite positive about Gordon Brown and, and the role he might play in this. Yeah, I mean, compared with what we've got with uh, <laughs> the Tories, I mean, it's not much of a... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, Labour has been a big part of moving Scotland forward. Um, you know, we've got to be grateful for the things the Labour Party have done in terms of giving us devolution, but also some of the, as I said, the sacrifices Labour made around the electoral system in particular. Uh, and I think we in the Yes movement also have to recognise, you know, Labour lost out more than anybody after the 2014 referendum. It's a very painful experience for them. And again, you know, they believe they were acting in the national interest. They feel as though they put the national interest before the party interest. So I think we have to respect that. I think we have to try and understand it. Uh, and also, I mean, many people in the SNP, if we were living in England, would be members of the Labour Party. Uh, you know, we're, we're different parties, obviously. Uh, but, you know, there's a there's a a great deal of potential affection, dare I say it. Um, <laughs> you know, if I, I voted Labour at the most recent election, I was living in England at the time, uh, and I did it not, I, I did it quite happily. Um, so 
I think a Labour government would be good for the UK. I, I think we badly need the change. And I think that if the if we do begin a pro process of genuinely rewiring, reforming the UK, that will be good for a devolved Scotland, but it will also be good for an independent Scotland. Uh, I mean, it's in, in, in Scotland's best interest to have a, a flourishing, uh, joyful England. I mean, the, the way England is at the moment is not good news for Scotland, regardless of our constitutional uh, uh, setting. So, you know, a, a successful Labour Party, I think, is is good news for us. So we in the SNP, we shouldn't be be worried about a Labour government emerging in England. I think it presents uh, great opportunities. Um, but we we you know we will we will be arguing for Labour to go further probably than than they will. And I think many people in Scotland will be looking for Labour to go further uh, than than they might do. You can certainly see how a Labour government in Westminster would. Um present opportunities for Scottish people and for the sorts of values that, 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 that the majority of Scottish voters want to see enacted in Scotland and at a UK level. But it would also represent a, a, perhaps not an immediate existential threat to the SNP, but certainly a, 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 a bigger electoral threat than, than Labour have presented really since the referendum. So is your view that actually if you get a Labour government that rewires the UK and that means that there's no independence referendum and even maybe that Labour went at Holyrood, but effectively you get more devolution or you get more powers, that in a way that's preferable to having an SNP government in Holyrood and a Tory government in Westminster that, that, that can't negotiate? So I would say that, you know, the, the SNP should be entering this election uh, relaxed about Labour doing what it needs to do to win in England. Um, and that might include them saying some nasty things about the SNP and refusing to talk to us and, and such like, that's fine. Let, let Labour do what it needs to do to win. Uh, the SNP case, I think, is a very strong one. So it's been described by some as for SNP, SNP to keep a Labour government honest. You know, the SNP will always be pushing Labour to go slightly further, um, not just in the constitutional issue, but on, on a range of things. Um, I think there's also a very powerful argument about the, you know, Labour plus you know, an SNP, the SNP at Westminster will almost certainly back Labour and the big, you know, changes that Labour are looking to take in. Uh, but again, they will add that extra bit. Uh, they will, they will, um, you know, push for more powers to the Parliament, push for the par people to, of Scotland to have a say over a referendum. Um, so Labour has to speak in a certain way to win in England. You know, we see it with Brexit, we see it with immigration policy. And, and these are things which are not going to resonate uh, to the same extent in Scotland. So, so the SNP, um, I don't think, should be hugely worried by uh, a Labour renaissance in England because uh, what Labour needs to do to win in England is not what it needs to do to win in Scotland. But doesn't Labour doing well in England make voters in Scotland go, well, actually, so much of the reason why people want change, whether it's through the Constitution or elsewhere, is they don't feel that this Conservative government reflects them, that it's competent, a whole, you know, and, and voters across England have the same issue, that they go, well, actually, if Labour are going to win in Westminster, we can vote for them and finally get rid of the Tories. Like that, that is a threat, really, that Sturgeon hasn't faced since she became First Minister. Yeah, but, I mean, this has been the, the backwards and forwards in, in Scottish politics, uh, you know, for many years. So, um, so I... I I think political parties win by putting their best foot forward. And, um, you know, of course, the SNP might choose to fight the next election as an independence referendum, uh, which I hope they don't. Uh, but if they fight it as get the Tories out, keep Labour honest and get more powers for the Scottish Parliament, that's not a bad place to be to be arguing into. If you were advising Nicola Sturgeon then, because she has said it is going to be a de facto referendum. She's been very, she's been explicit about it. How do you row back from that? How do you then go, oh, I know I said that, but actually it is going to be about schools and hospitals and all the other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the First Minister did some, you know, good things this this past, uh, when the uh, court session result came, came out. Uh, so first of all, she made very clear that, you know, there's a democratic argument here. Uh, you know, absolutely, Scotland should have a, a, a route for this to be decided. But the second thing she did was she uh, opened it up to the wider movement First of all, to the, the SNP, the party, by having this special conference. But I think, you know, she 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 used some very good language in terms of also wanting to hear the views of the wider movement. So uh, I, I think 
she's creating space for herself to hear the views of the movement, and that's a really good thing. Uh, so it's not yet clear exactly what the uh, election as mandate policy will mean. What's it a mandate for? Uh, so I, I think there's absolutely uh, space for her to listen to the party, listen to the movement, and uh, develop the strategy uh, in, in in that way. Isn't the danger that part of her unique appeal was that you could have voted no and still want her as first minister? And you could say, look, I I want Scotland to stay in the UK, but um, you know Richard Leonard or Jeremy Corbyn are not viable for a number of reasons, and Nicola Sturgeon is the most competent. And, uh, for, you know, all of her personal strengths are part of the reason that she's been first minister for so long. This chess move effectively removes that. And people go, oh, no, you, you've, you've removed in a way that that magic trick of we know you're a nationalist. We know you want independence more than anything. But we sort of also feel that you won't do anything reckless to achieve it. Has she not permanently damaged her own brand by doing this? So I, I remember when the referendum policy came in uh, and it was at a time where, you know, support for independence and support for the SNP were, were not necessarily the two things. So we, we we brought in the policy of offering a referendum so people could vote for us in a Scottish election. And, and, and you know, it wasn't about at that stage voting for independence. Uh, things have changed a lot uh, over the years. So now you've got a block of people, 45 to 50 percent of people in Scotland who want independence. And for many it is the absolutely core uh, issue. Um, and so, you know, these people, uh, yes, supporters will vote for the SNP and for the Greens. Um, and so you've got a block of 45 to 50% of people voting for two parties. And on the other side, you've got a block of, you know, 45 to 50% of people voting for, for three parties. Um, so, the circumstances have changed, is what I would say. Uh, so that doesn't mean that I don't think we should be trying to find a path forward which, uh, you know, allows the SNP to sort of also, you know, be government of Scotland. But uh, so if, if there's a if we can't have a referendum, there are other options for finding a path forward which put this issue, which would try and create this. Um, this this more consensual unifying space. So I I think it is possible to sort of separate out the uh, the two. And how do you feel about the way that things have gone since the referendum? Just in general, not just about the yes side, but yes and no, and just civic life in Scotland, the tone of debate. Obviously, it's been an issue across the UK as well. It's not unique to Scotland, but Scotland does have that extra constitutional debate on top of all the other debates that we're having. Yeah. How have you felt in the eight years since the referendum about what it's done to to public life and to the to the nature of the debate? So I think we need to remember some of the things we've gone through together. So we've gone through, uh, you know, the COVID, which was a, a a hugely difficult experience for people psychologically, emotionally. You know, we were cooped up in our houses and perhaps uh, caught in a, a a Twitter loop for some of us. Um, uh, you know, we've gone through. Brexit, which was really difficult, the cost of living, Ukraine. Um, so we've, we've gone through a series of crises. Um, and in a sense, it's not surprising that we're um, a wee bit frustrated, a wee bit angry, a wee bit defensive. Um, you know, not just in Scotland, but elsewhere. Um, so we should give ourselves a bit of a break. But recognising where we've got to, we should make a conscious choice to move away from where we've got to. Uh, so my argument would be that in Scotland in particular, you know, in the 90s, we made a very conscious choice to adopt a different way of doing politics. We made a choice. We no longer wanted to operate in the binary of Westminster. You know, the winner takes all. Uh, we wanted to escape that sort of Westminster mindset. And we set up a Scottish Parliament with a PR system deliberately to create a space which was more consensual, where we were open to the views of others and where we had to cooperate across the political divide in a way that you know you don't have to when you win everything. Um, so I think there's a, a a way of doing politics which is part of Scotland's uh, constitutional heritage, it's part of our recent history uh, and I think we can make the conscious choice to step back into that space. Um, and I think it's open to the UK to do this as well. I mean, I think Gordon Brown's likely to recommend PR for the House of Lords. I wish Labour would go further and introduce PR to the House of Commons. I think proportional representation 
is an essential step for the UK. Um, you know, we're a hugely divided country economically, uh, north and south. I mean, I, uh, and that is not going to change until we change the power structures within the country, I, I think. Uh, so PR would be good for Westminster and recapturing the PR mindset would be good for Scotland. Is this an insane, you know, if you're talking about independence in say 20, 25 years or, or however long, is the SNP necessarily the best party to take this cause forward? Now, I know that Alba or Alapari, I'm never entirely sure how to pronounce it, <laughs> depending on which activists I talk to, but Alex yeah. Salmon's new party, effectively, obviously the, the sort of star of the independence movement uh, until a few years ago, or even not that. Is, is, is there a sense actually the SNP have taken this as admirably and as and as far and as and as competently as they possibly could, but actually, there might be something about the SNP that itself, its brand, it, maybe even the individuals that that now can't be the people to carry this forward, or is that just madness? I mean, the SNP, um, you know, wins elections. I mean, <laughs> I, it's currently got a majority along with the Greens in the Scottish Parliament. You know, forty-five plus percent of the vote. So, you know, the SNP. Uh, is obviously doing something right. Uh, the first minister is obviously doing something right. Um, so the SNP is at its is at its best when it is a, a, the coalition. I mean, the SNP has been a coalition of of different views. Uh, some closer to mine, which is about you know the old gradualists, as we were called. Um, so there's a there's a, there's a decentralist, uh, more gradualist. Uh, strand to the SNP, which I think is maybe a little bit quieter at the moment, but would, would definitely uh, you know, strengthen the movement if it was a, a little bit uh, more to the fore, uh, I think. Um, so the challenge for the Yes movement as a whole and for the SNP is about reaching out beyond our current 50%. Uh, you know, we need to get to 55, 60%. And that means being open to people who aren't quite with us yet. Uh, it's people who are pro-autonomy for Scotland, uh, but they're also pro our relationship with the UK. Uh, and, you know, what I would say to my former colleagues is that we are not a million miles away from, from some of these people. Um, uh, but in order to reach out to them, you know, we can't just stand firmly on you know, my rights and my beliefs, we, we have to, you know, move forward with a deep, maybe humility might be a good word uh, to throw in here. Um, so the SNP absolutely has done a fantastic job. I mean, I'm a member of the SNP, um, but we're now at a stage where I think we need to be looking beyond uh, our boundaries and, and looking beyond our boundaries to the centre, uh, to those who are not quite with us uh, at this stage, but, you know, as I said, are not a million miles away from us. And what's the best way to reach those people, do you think? I think it's about beginning a process which doesn't have any defined endpoint, uh, but also and doesn't have any possibilities excluded. So it's maybe just taking a wee bit of a deep breath and letting go of some of the, you know, the, the 2014 momentum or the 2014 spirit and just realising we're now in a different space. Um but would they have to be explicit? Would they have to say, uh, and by they, like, you know, the SNP, would they have to say, look, a referendum is not going to happen in the next 10 years or something like that? Say, look, if, if we can have one, we'll have one. But it, would it be about explicitly saying, look, we're not going to keep saying there's going to be a referendum next year, as we've kept saying. We are so going to stop saying I, that. I think what we should be saying is let's agree a way forward together, um, uh, which includes a referendum at some point, but the referendum does not have to be the immediate next step. Uh, and let's begin a conversation which has independence as an option. Absolutely, it has to be an option. Um, so this was this was one of the problems back in the 90s. Independence was excluded as an option. And so the SNP in the end didn't get involved in the, the Constitutional Convention. Um, so if we're going to do this again, independence has to be absolutely one of the options. Um, so no, no avenue closed off uh, and no... You know, we're not just doing this to to drum beat people towards independence. We we have to be open as the yes movement. We will not get everything that we want, or we will not not get everything we want at the the, the speed uh, that we want. Um, and there are absolutely people in Scottish politics who are up for this. I mean, I I've been speaking to them um, 
there are people in the no side, the pro-UK side, who are up for this. So let's just reach out to them. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, obviously, trust would be such a big part of that. And obviously, you're saying you're talking to people on the on the no side. Um, but are, are they senior people? Are they people that could actually make a difference? I mean, can, can you ever imagine... Nicola Sturgeon, Anas Sawar, Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, sitting down and, and, and beginning this process as you describe. So that's not the first step. So again, I go back to what happened in Scotland in the late 80s and the 90s, and it was a group of uh, you know, non-politicians who began to create the, the space for the politicians to enter. Um, do I think these politicians have got it in them to do it? Absolutely. So, so I mean, Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister's, um, you know, at her best is someone who absolutely naturally reaches out. Uh, and I know she's sometimes presented in the opposite way from that. Um, but, you know, I saw her during the referendum campaign and she has, you know, she, she, she was going to public meeting after public meeting uh, and engaging with people. Uh, hearing what people were saying uh, and the independence case was made stronger because Nicola, the First Minister, had her finger on the pulse. Um, so she's absolutely got the capacity to to do this. Um, you know, I think Labour in Scotland are in a on a bit of a journey as well. So for a long time, Labour in Scotland have been battling out with the Conservatives to be the most muscular unionist. Um, you know, because that was the politically advantageous thing to do. Um, I think there's a, another space opening up. So I was particularly interested by Anna Sarwar's response to the Supreme Court decision. Uh, and he was immediately speaking in a, a, a different space. Um, and again, about, you know, Scotland being on a journey, about more powers, about um, that sort of narrative. So we're not, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Uh, but if the people of Scotland, and indeed, I mean, the people of the broader UK, uh, you know, w- one thing I would say to listeners is that this is not going to go away as an issue. Um, don't necessarily believe all the things that you hear about what the Yes movement is about and, and, and what we want. Um, there is a reasonable case here, and there are reasonable people seeking to engage um, so that presents a challenge for the Labour Party at a UK level as well. Um, you know, let's just get this sorted. Isn't there a danger to this whole thing that actually you might ask people if there was a referendum tomorrow, how would you vote? And it's basically 50 50. It wobbles yeah. one way or the other depending on the week's news, but it is pretty 50 50. When you actually ask people, do you really want a referendum? Then it falls way down people's lists as it did with Brexit. Is there not a danger that the political class are having this conversation over and over again? when people across the UK just think, well, sort my schools out, put more police on the beat. Like, actually, people's daily lives are something completely different to this constitutional obsession, whether it's Brexit, whether it's independence. And that actually, this is driving a wedge. These sorts of debates don't just drive a wedge between people. Actually, the, the political class seems to look very distant from people's daily lives. 
So again, I would go back into the the nineties, the eighties, the nineties, and you know this argument was made. Again, this isn't an issue that has any real weight with the people of Scotland. You know, this is a political class uh, issue. But when we actually got to the referendum, huge turnout and seventy percent of people in Scotland voting for uh, change, and you know, people very happy with the parliament uh, and and the journey it is on. Um, so constitutional issues properly done are absolutely connected to bread and butter issues. Uh, the challenge for us is, are we doing the constitutional issues in the best possible way? Uh, and I think the answer to that at the moment is no, uh, we, we aren't. Uh, so this isn't a diversion. It's not a, 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 it, a it doesn't have to be a source of, of division. Uh, we can do this in a different way. I, I guess in a way that again all these things in theory uh, and it's very hard to disagree with what you're saying but by its nature it is a divisive topic so you might be able to take the sting out of it and, and maybe give it a longer process give it a different process but by its nature there will be at least half of Scotland saying actually I don't want to be part of this process at all <laughs> this isn't why don't instead of obsessing about who governs us and, and devolution why don't we just fund our public services better you know that would that would be uh, the the best way to improve people's lives tomorrow, rather than the distraction of the you know the bandwidth that's taken up by talking about yeah. this. And we saw it with Brexit. I mean, you saw it with the war in Iraq. You know, this it's not unique to Scottish independence. When a big issue comes along, uh, it just the whole government is, is sidelined with it. But this, it really feels like this has dominated for so long in a way that that has been to the detriment. But you know, the first minister's own words—they took the eye off the ball when it came to keeping with drug dependency issues alive. It makes you wonder what other things are being pushed down the list. What are the priorities? It, it, I mean, I guess in a way we're agreeing with each other because you are saying do it in a different way. But it, it does feel that even having any sort of, I mean, I realise you can't not have the discussion, but I guess, what you know, one thing that really struck me actually was during the last Holyrood election, I was watching the leaders' debates. And I remember around 2014, independence felt like a very vital thing, felt like a fresh coming movement. It felt like the issue of the day and the politicians advocating it felt like there was something very contemporary about it. And I realised they stood on the shoulders of of, of their forebears and, and their ancestors in, in making this case, but it felt, it felt very much of its time. At the last round of Hollywood elections, actually, it felt the opposite. It felt like it was yesterday's debate and that everyone else had moved on. And I just, I wonder if there isn't a political and social cost, not to even having the conversation because it, you have to have it, but is there not a is there not a cost that in effect that neither of us are fully appreciating which is for people like you and me these are great conversations to have but for most people actually even having this conversation they just think oh it's boring you know we've had it let's all yeah. just move on so for a chunk of people um the 2014 experience was a, a hugely empowering and joy-filled one uh there was a real sense of something happening in scotland uh Alongside that, though, for a good chunk of the population, it was a, a terrible experience. It was, it was, uh, you know, the, the worst few months of their lives in, in some respects. Um, absolutely. So for some people, this is a, a core uh, belief in something they really want. And for others, it's, it's, it's you know, a terrible nightmare and they wish it would all just go away. I came back from Canada uh, after what being away for four years, and I was really struck by the extent to which some of the sort of joy and energy has gone out of the movement. Uh, and part of that is because we've gone through some really hideous uh, situations, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So part of where I'm coming from is I, I, I'd love us to create a space where we can go back once again to having a conversation about the vision we have for Scotland's future. That's what empowered so many people back in, in 2014. Uh, I'm conscious you can't do it if the conversation is simply about independence because half the population will not want to join. So that's why I, I, I would like us to have a conversation which has independence as part of it, but also has the possibility that this is not going to take us to independence. So let's have a conversation about the sort of Scotland we would like to see in 20, 30 years time. And I say that because when I speak to people who are currently no voters, their vision of Scotland in 20, 30 years' time is, Scot is a Scotland with greater autonomy, but also a Scotland with a closer relationship with the EU uh, and a slightly looser relationship 
with the rest of the UK. Um, and that's not a million miles away from, you know, my vision uh, of the future. Um, so can we have this conversation in a space where we begin to capture, again, some of the energy of 2014, but do it in a way that it's not threatening uh, to those who weren't able to participate in the 2014. Uh, so I hope that what's happened over these last you know, few days, these last few weeks, brings is a full stop basically on the referendum campaign, the 2014 period. We take a deep breath and then we move forward to something new. Uh, and what we move forward to can be a genuine national conversation about the sort of Scotland we seek uh, over these next 10, 20, 30 years. And I think the challenge for the Yes movement is absolutely, we should be creative about doing more with the powers we have. We should be open to the suggestions that Labour and others will make for, for more powers and do that while never and not giving up on our belief that, yeah, absolutely independence is the best future for Scotland. So, uh, you know, juggling those three balls, I mean, it's not easy, but I think that's the challenge that we face. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it excites me, actually. Uh, let's make the most of this parliament that we have. Let's keep on moving it forward and let's have as the end point uh, this vision of a Scotland which is, yeah, independent. But you know what's so great about that is every country on earth should be doing that because the, the danger is with politics is it becomes very much about the day to day. Um, it, it, certainly in democracies like ours, it becomes about the lifetime of a parliament. So what are you going to do in five years? And those pressures are good for politicians to be able to go back to the public and say, this is what I've done. But it does build in a kind of short termism sometimes. Yeah. And as a population, we should all be thinking about what do we want the UK to look like in 30 years time or Scotland or America or wherever? And actually, we, how often do we as a public go, where do we want to be in 30 years' time in yeah. terms of energy or whatever? It's just such a good, it, even out of the independence debate, it's just such a positive filter to put on politics and to create that space for the world, you know, for the environment or whatever. It's just such a good way to just make us think more long-term anyway. And that, that is inherently a positive thing. So I, I think there are various things wrong with the way we do politics in the UK at the moment. And one of them is the focus on dividing lines. So we we say, this is what I believe, and then we, we characterise what the other side believe. And it's never really the truth. Uh, and we do it because we think there's a, a political advantage. But what it does, it, it actually just creates um, unnecessary binaries within, within politics. Uh, so I would love us to move away from a politics of dividing lines and into a politics which was also focused on the many, many things that unite us, you know. Where is Keir Starmer right? Where is Rishi Sunak right? Um, where is Nicola Sturgeon right? I mean, that's a very different starting point. And it, but for me, it's a much, much richer starting point. The second thing I would say about the way we do politics at the moment is that it's, it's hugely focused on parliament. Uh, but, you know, democracy is actually about much more than just elections. I mean, elections are absolutely central to more democracy, but there's something about civic participation. Uh, there's something about the ability to take issues away from the heat uh, of politics. And so Ireland is doing some great things. I mean, Ireland is doing with citizens' assemblies, taking some really difficult issues into places where members of the public can actually have detailed, rich conversations about difficult policy choices. So these are exactly the sort of things I think our politics would bene be benefiting from. Um, I, I say this because, I mean, I, I, as you probably know, I, I was in religious life for the last seven years and uh, a Jesuit. And, you know, the Jesuits were created in the middle of the Reformation. Uh, and the founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius, I mean, what he said to his first followers was, and this is in the midst of the Reformation, uh, look first to what might be right in what the other person is saying and make that your starting point. Try to understand where that person is coming from and why they might be saying what they are saying. Uh, and if you start from that perspective, rather than sort of jumping to immediately want to, to pull them down and, and you know crush them in witty debate, uh, you're immediately in a very different place. You're in a place which is constructive and about building rather than about pulling down. Uh, and you, know, you see the theatre of Prime Minister's questions, and it's all about pulling down. It's all about 
Yeah. And you've got to have part of that in, in politics, but you've also got to have the other part, which is about building up and reaching out. Um, so you, you become a Jesuit priest after the 2014 referendum. Do you think you would have all always eventually done that? Or, or and that process was hastened by that experience? Or was that something that was entirely a product of that need to um, get out of the heat of politics? So I never I never became a priest. I mean, I, I, I sort of left before ordination. Um, I mean, my desire to become a Jesuit was, I suppose, based upon I, I, I wanted a bit more depth. I mean, politics can be quite shallow sometimes. I wanted a bit, uh, yeah, I want to be able to go deeper uh, in, in, into things. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for having had the opportunity over these last seven years to take a take a step back from the world. Absolutely, um, uh, to do philosophy, to do theology, psychology, pastoral ministry, all these sort of things, which give have given me a very different perspective. Um, so yeah, I mean, I who knows whether it was the referendum uh, that that drew me into that path, but I, I'm very glad I did it. Um, but you always had faith. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, I, I I've been a Catholic all my life. Um, I would say my faith has changed over the years uh, from being, uh, you know, not quite a tribal Catholicism, um, uh, but I suppose I I've been able to sort of focus on what is most important in my faith uh, over these years, I, and the big lesson of my time as a a, a Jesuit was. You know, this is all about loving relationship. It's about uh, empathy with people. Um, I mean, I'm really taken by some of the conversations starting in the US. One of the responses to Trump in the US was the conversations around a politics of love. Uh, and love is a really difficult word to use in politics because people think it's soppy and soft, but it's actually a really hard word because uh, it means reaching out to your opponent. It means treating, treating your opponent as, as a neighbor uh, rather than as an enemy, uh, so so a politics of love is a, a hard politics, but I think it's the sort of politics that we need. So in the referendum back in twenty fourteen, we we talked about a politics of hope, uh, and I don't think that's enough. I think in the world where you know fear, po the politics of fear is gaining ground, we need a politics of hope and a politics of love. Um, so that would be my challenge, in a in a sense, to. Uh, the current crop of active politicians, uh, you know, how how can we bring the L word uh, into our political engagement? And by that, you don't mean the Lib Dems. You mean, you mean love. <laughs> um, yes. although of course we should love Lib Dems as well. We should love people from all parties. Yeah. So why didn't you get ordained then? Did did you have second thoughts at that point? So um, the stage of formation I, I left at was a thing called Regency, which is basically work experience. So I had done the studies. a lot grander than that. Regency suggests I know, yeah. almost princely. So I, I, uh, absolutely. Uh, so I was a regent um, and it was living in a Jesuit community and doing a, a, a proper Jesuit job. Um, and while there was a great deal of richness to it, I just realised it wasn't for me. Um, and that's that's what the process is designed to do. It's designed to see, okay, is this really a fit? Um, and it became fairly obvious fairly quickly once I was actually doing the doing the job that it wasn't the fit that I thought it was going to be. Uh, and the process of leading was a really good one. I mean, this is I've got a great deal of affection for the society. I mean, I, I it was a life changing experience. Uh, I, I owe the society a great deal. Uh, uh, but yeah, it just wasn't wasn't right. What lessons do you think politicians can? I mean, obviously, lots of politicians in the UK are very open about their faith and about the influence on it. And sometimes they're mocked for for uh, you know Tony Blair was for having faith and, and and many others. But what can politics learn from you know whatever denomination you're in, whatever faith you're from? Is it just love, or is there something else? Is there a sense of uh, a, a more gentle way to organise society and to have effectively active citizens? So I think, um, you know, religion can be done well and religion can be done badly, uh, just like, <laughs> like politics. Um, so again, I, I go back to the, the 1990s where, you know, the Church of Scotland was very involved in uh, the, the constitutional debate and what the 
Church of Scotland was able to do, along with others, was create a space where people could gather uh, and where conversations could be had. It, it wasn't quite holding the jackets, but it was actually holding a, a safe space. Uh, so I think there's a role for uh, people of faith uh, to create spaces into which politicians can can move. So, you know, po politics is by nature, it's conflictual. I mean, you, you, you have to win. I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Um, and so where there are things like faith, religion, uh, which are occupying a different space. I think one of our the responsibilities, one of the things that we can do is, is create spaces that we, we can invite, invite others into. And it's not just religion. I think academia has got a role to play in this as well. Um, uh, Civic Scotland is how we described it in the past. I, I think there is absolutely a role for the wider uh, civic community, I don't know what the right phrase is, uh, to create spaces where politicians can inhabit them in a different way. Um, you know, they, they don't have to be performing. Like sometimes, you know, you, th you think they are. Um, so yeah, that's that for me is a role for religion. And there are some good, I mean, it's not just Christianity. I mean, not the, each religion has fundamental values around, uh, you know, respecting uh, the other. Uh, so absolutely, this is a good space to be in. For some people, in a way, their politics does become a, a religion, doesn't it? It becomes, in effect, joining a political party is like joining a, a, a faith or, or joining a church. And then those things, in a way, you know, I mean, you see it with, for instance, you know, Labour's the, the best example, I think, sometimes of certain manifesto promises almost become like the Ten Commandments, things that cannot be deviated from regardless of the changes in society or whatever. And those sort of... I guess in a way they enrich people in a similar way that you're part of something that you feel you're doing good for the world that you're trying to change the world for the better that you care for your fellow citizen that in a way they they scratch the same itch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um and I think that's one of the things that you know we should appreciate that the, the person in the other political party is doing this out of really good motivation. Um you know they they will have the same desire to make the country to make the world better as as I do. Uh, they come at it from a different, you know, they, they suggest different uh, solutions, perhaps, but the, there's there's a, a a lot that actually we share as as people who are interested in politics. We, you know, we're doing this because we love our countries and and we we want to make the world better. Um, absolutely. And I guess similarly, if you you're going to draw the or I am going to extend extend the analogy that in a way people of faith. So if you're, you know, people who go to um, synagogue or, or or to the to the to church may have, even though they're from different faiths, actually have a lot in common compared yeah. to people who have none. But then equally, and this is where I, I guess the lesson for politics is: presuming that people who don't have faith don't have any sort of moral compass or code or, or, or spirituality or anything like that is a real risk, isn't it? So sometimes, I guess, if we're going to try and draw a parallel with politics, is there are people are political they just might not be party political they just might yeah. not like you know any political party or, or all of them together but that doesn't mean that they don't have political opinions and that you shouldn't in some way try and involve them yeah absolutely uh, and i think we're probably seeing that more and more i mean that was one of the great things about the referendum it was it was bringing people into politics this is on the yes side so people, people were being brought into politics and activism who had been who had felt disenfranchised for, for many, many years, you know, hadn't voted for, for many, many years, but they were becoming involved in local groups and they were having conversations with friends and family and they were thinking about these, these issues. Uh, and it spawned a whole, you know, range of different sort of activisms in Scotland for, for a period of time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people have got a deep desire to make the place they live as good as it possibly can be. And that's reflected sometimes in politics. It's reflected a great deal in, in religion. I mean, I, th I think of the the work that um, volunteers in the churches do around things like food banks and, uh, you know, support for a whole range of different projects. Uh, there's a real sort of depth and richness of, of civic engagement, which comes from politics in one way, but also from faith uh, in another way. Um, yeah.
you've uh, you've led a fascinating life and you're still so young you're chief strategist to the yes campaign then almost a jesuit priest and now you're in academia i think i always think people in politics you never fully get rid of it there's always a part of you that wants to go back now maybe that's wrong but can you see yourself working in politics again maybe in the in the medium term so in lots of ways, I'm, I'm, I am doing politics. I mean, I'm just doing it from a different space. Um, and I'm very conscious that as somebody who's not uh, active in the political world, you know, as we understand it, I have a freedom to say things that I wouldn't be able to say uh, publicly uh, otherwise. So I, I think there's a, you know, dare I use the phrase, I've got the best of both worlds. I've got the ability to, you know, engage in the political conversation, but also able to do it. Uh, expressing, you know, my 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 view about how how this thing should be done, and I'm very conscious that you know I, I'm one voice among many. Um, uh, what I say might not necessarily be true or correct, uh, but hopefully, what it will do is raise questions. Um, it might provoke better answers than the ones that I'm offering, um, and I'm really conscious that I have a freedom at the moment which I didn't have when I worked when I was. You know, chief strategist for the Yes campaign. Um, so you have, a, you have a level of independence, absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm enjoying. This has been so good. Thank you so much for coming on, giving me so much of your time. People are going to love listening to this. Thank you. There you go, Stephen Noon. What a guy! Oh man, I was just thinking. You know what? I wish we were doing this in the pub. I'd love to have sat there over a few whiskies with him long into the night by an open fire and just uh, continue to pick his brain about what every ramification would have meant. What a great bloke. So uh, thank you for downloading this and for all your lovely reviews. Do leave a five-star written review. It helps the podcast get up the charts. And of course, the live shows, my word, the lineups, the 5th of December, Rachel Reeves, the 19th, Yvette Cooper, Emily Thornbury and MP4, the 23rd of January, Emily Makeless and John Sopel at the same time, the 20th of February, Keir Starmer, the 6th of March, Eddie Izzard. The shows just get bigger and bigger. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Get your tickets at the link I've put it. You can go to nymaxtheatres.com or you can just click on the link that I've put in the blurb and uh, you can buy tickets for all those future shows. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford. And, well, I hope you're enjoying the start of the Christmas season. I know some people are slightly less into Christmas than I am, but I love it and my Christmas tree's up already. So I know it's cold, it's dark, it's wet. Everything costs a fortune. But obviously this podcast is free, so I hope it brings you... A, 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 I hope this is a twinkling Christmas light in the darkness of the winter, and I'll see you next time. ta